Hey ladies and gents, welcome to the Controlled Interest Gamecast episode 250. We made it, as always, I'm your host Jared White, and I'm joined by my co-host Dominic Rolando. Ready to get that Elden Bling today, Jared. Yeah, we're finally doing our Elden Ring spoiler cast. Uh, we've both been finished it for a while, but we felt, hey, the 250th episode of our podcast feels like the right time to do a, a spoiler cast. I think the only other spoiler cast we've done was Last of Us Part 2. Uh, which was a while ago, obviously. Oh, yeah. um, I kind of want to make these a more often occurrence. It's just we don't always play the same games and beat them at the same time. Right. But then again, we might end up making it a thing where it doesn't necessarily have to be a new game either. There might be something that we both decide, like, hey, let's both check that out. It was a backlog game, and we both played, and we can do a spoiler cast then too because I like uh, talking about a game and deep diving, you know. So. Kind of on that same note. Um, I am now fully and officially back into Xbox territory with the Series S. It's been really cool, but also, also of course, I have Game Pass, so I think it will be a little more natural for us to align on um, you know, playing games at the same time, whether <laughs> they just came out on Game Pass or you know they're still on there. Um, I know I still have a handful that you've told me about that I need to catch up on. Backbone was one. Spiritfarer is on Game Pass. I want to check that out. Uh, is Unpacked um, or Unpacking on, on, on Game Pass? Yeah, yep. there's a lot of really good <laughs> games on that service. So there's some, there's a lot of Game Pass stuff I want to catch up on that I've um, been missing the past like year or so that's come out. So the way this spoiler cast is going to work is we kind of made this document with, uh, I think it was nine total questions or uh, categories for the game, and we're going to go through them step by step. Uh, we each kind of filled it out on our own. Um, to give our own perspective on Elden Ring. So I guess we'll start up uh, with the easiest question. Well, might not be the easiest question, but it is the first question is, did it live up to the hype? Obviously, going into this game, like a lot of From Software games, people were highly anticipating it. There was a lot of buzz around it. The uh, clickbait for when the release date was going to be revealed was huge. Obviously, it had the pop at the Game Awards with the little pot friend walking out on stage with Jeff Keighley. A lot was going on. This was on the heels of cyberpunk right that had a lot of hype and it came out and it was a dud uh in many ways um obviously it's in a better place now i guess we'll start with you dom in your opinion it should be an easy question to answer right but maybe personally and also generally speaking did this live up to the immense hype that was leading up to its release yes <laughs> a short answer yes <laughs> um no surprise there right um but i want to think about it in terms of like expectations were super high but this was from we always point out from software like puts out games at a pretty good pace like pretty good cadence not quite call of duty quick but every two or three years they're putting out a game and they're generally very good they're also generally i mean this i think was the the, the from software game that took the biggest departure from everything before it i think might be wrong i mean or other people might have different opinions but I think it was the riskiest for them. It did the most different. It was the, obviously the biggest game they've done. Um, and it was, it was just, it was shooting really high. Like it's, it had its sets hot, it had its sights set really high. And I think it more than lived up to that. It, clearly it drew a lot from breath of the wild and injected the best parts of that game into that souls formula that we already like. So, um, yeah, I just it it's hard to imagine like not it's it feels like more often than not we get really excited for something and it's either like okay, yep, this is good. This is what I thought. More of this. It's great. It's cool. It's good. Or it's a letdown like you mentioned Cyberpunk. Um or it was something we never heard of and it blew us out of the water, right? Or if yeah. it was something we didn't know what to expect like God of War Ragnarok, which was an established True. franchise, but it also caught people uh, you know, off guard based on the jump that made for the franchise. So And and that's a weird one, too, because I feel like I see a lot of people claiming that there was a lot of hype for that game before it came out, and I don't remember that at all. I feel like people were kind of hesitant, like, oh, what are they going to do with God of War now? And then after it, once it did come out, it was like, oh, shit. Um, well, the previews were like the Leviathan Axe is really cool from all the stuff that people got to play early, but I don't think the hype was anywhere before that game released anywhere near cyberpunk or elden ring i think people yeah. were very cautiously optimistic but i don't think there was a lot of hype there mm -hmm. and then so with elden ring it was kind of a more i think a more unique case of expectations were super high for this um and it somehow did even better than those expectations and yeah 
without we're going to get into some more of the specifics obviously with the next couple questions but yeah i think it it lived up and surpassed that hype and and that makes things a little scary i think looking forward for god of war ragnarok for starfield and some of these enormous games that are on the horizon that also have really big um you know hype and lead up and now after elden ring you know the standards have been uh set pretty high i think so um but staying on Elden Ring, absolutely. It surpassed the hype, and now we're here, Elden Blinging. So, you know, stick with me on this. I would like to compare Elden Ring to, like, a Payne Manning or a LeBron James. And what I mean by that is, so, Michael Jordan and Tom Brady, uh, LeBron James and Payne Manning, are all considered the greatest of all time at their position, and the argument goes one way or another. Those are, like, for basketball, it's between LeBron and Michael Jordan, and then for a quarterback, it's between Tom Brady and Payne Manning, right? And the difference between them, the reason I, I, I pair them like that is Michael Jordan and Tom Brady are the type of uh, person whose career trajectory was they were the underdog and then they surpassed mm-hmm. expectations no one ever thought they could even come close to. Whereas in the other side, Peyton Manning and LeBron James were phenoms. They were regarded as going to be the best yeah. of the best since they were since little. Middle school. And they not only lived up to those expectations, but surpassed it. And I think a lot of times when people look at those athletes and they determine who, in their opinion, is the greatest, I think it's what people end up finding more amazing in, in terms of overcoming or achieving. So like with LeBron and Payton, it's like it's one thing to have those expectations. How many players and athletes have those crazy expectations and how many of them might match it or come underneath that, whereas they were sky high and they even surpassed those, which is really impressive, right? Mm-hmm. And on the opposite end, it's like, well, Michael Jordan and Tom Brady, they were good, but they weren't ever considered. You know, you hear the story about Michael Jordan getting cut from his high school team. You hear Tom Brady getting taken in the sixth round. It's like they weren't expected to be the players they ended up becoming. That's pretty impressive too. You know, no one's looking at you and you end up becoming one of the greatest of all time. Elden Ring, obviously, I think is LeBron James Payne Manning of like, you know, people expected this game to be good. From Software has built a reputation. And not only did they do that, they surpassed those expectations. Whereas a game, like you said, that comes out of nowhere is more of that Michael Jordan, um, Tom Brady and they're both very impressive in their own ways I just think sometimes a lot of that expectation can build stress and build pressure and not everybody mm-hmm. can handle that pressure so when they actually succeed in that venue it's really impressive um, you know I don't have anything else to add in terms of yeah they match the hype and beat it and it is impressive because we have seen games come out and you know we can go back to Fallout 4 right which wasn't a bad game it wasn't on the cyberpunk level in terms of release but it also didn't match the hype of what people wanted from that next Fallout game. And we hope we get that with Starfield. So, yeah, it lived up to the hype, and it's pretty impressive for this type of studio. Uh, we talk about often, like, I think the closest studio in the West that can match both the output and the quality is Insomniac Games uh, in terms of how quickly they release games. And when Elden Ring released earlier this year, they already announced that their next game is in the final stages of production. It's assumed to be Armored Core, but it could be Sekiro 2, hopefully maybe a Bloodborne 2 or something. But yeah, their cadence, especially with the scope of this game and the scale of it, is in- incredible. Um, and I'd, speak I'd of- add, too, to the scope and scale, both of is the, the game itself, but also this game you know, came out on, like, what, eight different platforms? Like Xbox One, Xbox One X, Series S, Series X, PlayStations 4, Pro and 5, and et cetera, PC, obviously. Um, the fact that they, it's playable on the Steam Deck, <laughs> the Steam Deck, even they made it um, playable there. Like this is that like cross generational point of time where like the expectation is kind of like you're putting the game your game out on as many platforms or tons of different platforms, which that's a lot of extra bug fixes and optimization and all that. And I, it's hard to ever. I don't even hardly blame developers when that doesn't go well. When like oh yeah no, no the PlayStation version isn't all that great or stop fully taking advantage of the PS5 or 4 whatever, all that kind of stuff, like, feels nitpicky, but for the most part, like, um, I mean, there were probably, there's a few bugs and um, minor things, but the game wasn't anywhere close to what any reasonable person would call broken or unstable or anything like that. At worst, it's like that typical from software jank, right, that we sometimes get that they usually iron out. Um, Yeah, it's it's funny because, you know, nothing against, like, Naughty Dog games, they're incredible, but an alternate dimension where they naughty dog is a multi-platform developer like Mm -hmm. can they still reach those quality benchmarks if they're developing for 
you know, more than a couple of platforms at a time. And it is impressive. And I do think we have to. It takes, like, to your point, Naughty Dog, really good games, but they spend a lot of time for a game much smaller in scope. Uh, Maybe not, like, I mean, it's just smaller, like, than Elden Ring. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I don't know how else to say it. Like, it's equally, maybe technically impressive, but it's just smaller. And, and we've, you know, we've had the, heard those reports about the way they make games is kind of not sustainable. We're like not super efficient, um, but it's polished by the end of it when it does come out. So yeah, I think yeah, we can't talk enough about like from software is like, they're just getting shit done somehow. They're, they're cranking these things out. Speaking of, you know, plotting them, let's get to some of the game strengths. Uh, you know, I listed mine out loosely and we can go over them. We can go back and forth. How many do you have? I have five listed. I I have one that I listed because I think I wanted to focus most on it. Um, okay. Because it's mo- so, it's like the biggest thing that's different from the previous from games. But yeah, we'll touch on a lot. I'll go I'll go over three of mine, then we'll go over yours, and then we'll go over my last two. Okay. Okay. I think that sounds good. So first up is exploration. I mean, that's and I'm not going to spend too much time on these, but you know, in from games, there is a sense of exploration, but this one because it's open world and to the, our point of the scale of it being so huge. You really feel as if you going and, oh, wow, there's this weird little forest. What's in here? Why are there these glowing turtles? Why is there, like, this tower I can't get in? Oh, wait, there's this, like, weird riddle on the front that I have to solve. Or you find a random enemy that's just chilling in a typical front fashion. You go and mess with that enemy, and it leads you to a different area. And everything kind of builds on itself in a really unique way. Um, Because it's open world, we've talked about this before, the NPCs and where you can find them feels less structured in a good way than previous from titles because it always felt as if oh you're going to reach this checkpoint there's going to be an npc here that you're going to interact with and in this game because it's open world it doesn't feel as checkpointy in that you come across a random woman sitting on a, a log bench right and she's like oh my father's castle is under attack i didn't want me to be there and it, it seems like it's more organic storytelling in that way Um, Next up, Sense of Mystery. This kind of goes along with the exploration of the environmental storytelling, uh, both in the open world and then when you get into these tighter corridors of these buildings. It just, you don't know what lurks behind any corner because it's not that from games have a pattern, but if you play enough of them, you kind of understand how things are going to be designed. That doesn't take away from them being well designed. It just means you kind of know what to expect. And once again, with this being open world, they tend to play with those expectations in a really clever way. And because it's the game isn't only scaled wide in terms of on a horizontal scale, it's also on a vertical scale. They do a really good job of having you explore different levels to buildings too, like the first floor, second floor, third floor, and it all comes together really cool. And then lastly, this one is the one I probably had to spend the least amount of time on because it's like the thing that From's known for, the combat. Um, you know, obviously the addition of like the spirits, uh, add a unique twist to the from formula. And I like that you can respec your character at any time and you're not locked into a certain combat style, which is also really good. Uh, yeah, overall, if you play from games, you know, that their combat is going to be one of the shining points of the game. And obviously Elden Ring delivered. I want to hear what this one focused thing is. I'm curious. So it's one that you already mentioned and that's, that's the exploration because I think this is you mentioned combat and to me combat is really great in this game um you know maybe a tick or you know a tick better than like Dark Souls 3 and previous from games where it's kind of like the next step in some of that like they keep they always find a way to like make more bosses um and with each new game to like tweak the way the combat works just a little bit to make it kind of hard to reintroduce yourself even um like I made the joke, like most of the bosses in Elden Ring are similar to a, a Dark Souls boss, but there's just an extra second or two or three delay in the attack timing from all the bosses, which throws off my expectations. I'm so used to the, you know, what it used to be. Um, so th- little things like that, I think, um, kind of make the combat like still really good and fresh enough and new enough. Um, but the the one thing that stood out to me the most. Uh, that impressed me the most is the exploration because this is just so open and they're i'm going to um, reference breath of the wild a lot today i guess so there are points in that game um where 
you're just there, there's something really natural about the way you want to go and look under every little rock and go in every little corner and figure everything out um and the same thing is 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 present here in elden ring but i think even more so and also at around the 50 hour mark in breath of the wild i kind of lost that that desire to want to explore everything and i wanted to just beat the game already i wanted to do dungeons and things like that um but in in elden ring it just to me that was just it, that same feeling from breath of the wild was just extended and and done even better and and it lasted 100 hours or more um because i i stopped at that point after i beat the game right but <clears throat> yeah to me that's the biggest thing is the way the world naturally incentivizes you to explore and find things it's not not check boxes you know not icons on the map things like that um there's not like explicit rewards necessarily for exploring you're kind of just doing it because you want to and then you will get rewarded too and it um you might you may or may not use that thing right away or whatever it is but that sense of exploration was something very um, at least the way it was done in elden ring very new in a from software game um and that to me was like the biggest strength that this game brought. Uh, and I'm again comparing it to like previous from games as well. So it, um, especially compared to those, uh, exploration is just as top tier as it could possibly get. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think a lot of game developers who make open world games follow the same rules of like, okay, there needs to be a, a point of interest ever so uh, in terms of the distance from the player, so that way they're always engaged. And even though a developer follows those rules, there's like uniqueness to how you actually design the world to make it engaging, right? Like just because you create a point of interest doesn't mean it's going to be interesting to the player. Uh, and with From Software, they absolutely nailed that. Um, the last, it's funny that I was my first one. I listened and I was like, Game Strengths, Exploration number one. And you're like, that's the yeah. one. That's the one. Mm -hmm. um, my last two, uh, this goes also with the open world design is the sense of scale. Um, in most from games, you certainly get a sense of scale, especially with the bosses you, you engage with. With this game, it was really interesting that as the game progressed, that scale got larger and larger and you felt less and less, um, capable isn't the right word, but like you, you understood your place in this, in this world. And what I mean by that is when you first start the game, I think the first sense of skill that kind of catches you off guard is when the dragon appears in the lake near the, the opening yeah. area of the game. You're like, okay. I've seen, you know, big from bosses before, but yeah, I got, I got to understand that I can come across bosses like this. And then, um, when you first get to the underground city and you come across one of those rooms where one of the large people are sitting in the throne or whatever it is, I actually took a picture of that for the first time. I thought that's incredible. It looks so cool. And for me, the scale of enemies is one of the most interesting things you can do in designing a world because, uh, you know, so often we play games that are meant to be power fantasies. And I think at its core, From Games are meant to make you understand that it isn't a power fantasy, uh, that you are you are but a lonely being in this dark world, and it's up to you to try to overcome all of that, which I think is really cool. Um, so yeah, the tarnished. sense of skills. And there's been many tarnished, and none of them have become Elden Lord. You won't be. <laughs> yeah, but the sense of scale generally in this game is, is great. And then lastly, uh, a shoe, and I think that we often don't, praise enough because i don't think it's necessarily at the top of the top when looking at the video game industry but the music and score in this game is incredible oh, yeah. a lot of the boss themes are outstanding um but because a lot of the other parts of the game are so strong i think that often gets lost in the mix and it's one of those things where like if the music and the score are really good you don't notice it as a flaw so you don't really appreciate it as much you know whereas like if a game has a really bad score it's like oh you Got to put this, you know, lower the music volume in this game. So, yeah, I, I wanted to shout out that as well. And with that, we got to get to, you know, no game is perfect. We got a nitpick. I actually have three weaknesses I wanted to list. And once again, uh, in the grand scale of the quality of this game, these are absolute nitpicks. Like, I don't think these are, like, ruining, you know, game experience ruining or anything like that. Do you, How many do you have listed? Uh, Just one. <laughs> just one. Okay, I'll do my first uh, two. Uh, though I didn't have an issue with it, uh, looking back on the game, I do think there was too many pallet swap bosses. Um, obviously, the game features hundreds of bosses, and a lot of them are the same boss with a slight twist. Um, and that's fine in the moment, but I do think that 
towards the end of my adventure, I found myself avoiding a lot of the smaller optional bosses just because it's like, I don't need um, the, the, the souls. Uh, I don't need uh, the experience because I've already fought that boss before. It kind of turned me off in a way uh, where I was just like, eh, I don't really need to do that, which I think was a bit of a bummer. I think there was a, a little bit more variety. Once again, it is a nitpick. It wasn't like super noticeably bad or anything like that. It just is something that could be improved if we ever do get a sequel. Um, yeah. Mine is mine is similar, and, and maybe it'll also come up on your list too, but a lot of the the dungeons that you go into, there's like three or four different styles, right? There's the, the caves, or the tunnels rather, dungeons, um, and one more I'm not thinking of. But the dungeons and the caves and the tunnels, they they would just they'd feel like it's they'd be a different layout, um, different enemies in each one, but they'd always have like kind of the same. A lot of reused assets, I guess you could tell. Like basically, they just made different hallways go different directions, but it was just very similar. A lot of them, um, they each had their own unique puzzles. Um, uh, but there was just too much uh, of that, and that was kind of one thing where I'm like, oh yeah, it's another one of these. Uh, dungeons now that being said you do find some later on in the game where you think that but then something happens in the dungeon that's like way different than what's been going on before so they kind of subvert you a little bit um but even still like through much of the game and that's like you know it's 40 hours in by the time i'm finding a dungeon and like all of a sudden instead of just the the regular dungeon with these guillotines coming down and, and the same puzzles it's all of a sudden it's like a battle being waged among like all these like enemies npcs basically all fighting each other and you like walk in like oh shit like and you try you can start to fight too but it's gonna be tough and um that one really caught me off guard i was like oh crap what the heck is going on in here this is just nuts um but yeah even still i i still kind of pointed that out as a thing that some of those some of those dungeons were repetitive well and i think that's interesting thing is because i think they still feel handcrafted to a certain extent they weren't like Mm -hmm. procedurally generated and I, I wonder if that's one of the trade-offs, right, of, like, avoiding crunch or avoiding these type of things is, like, well, yeah, we just got to reuse assets because that's the best yeah. efficient way to do things. Um, I might get a little bit of a, a pushback for this one because I know this is what Frum's known for, and I want to be specific about my complaint. And that's uh, some of the unnecessary obtuseness in the game. Um, obviously, that's a trademark of Frum. There's going to be stuff in there that's, you know, made to be obtuse on purpose but some of the core gameplay elements of the game i kind of push back on it being unnecessarily obtuse one of them is upgrading spirits most of the people i know who played didn't know you had to have the conversation between the girl and the blacksmith and go back and forth in order for her to unlock the ability to upgrade your spirits and that's something like the spirits are so core to the experience and as we've mentioned they help dictate the difficulty in the game they're a way for you to alleviate difficulty if you so choose or at least change the gameplay too. Um, and I think that being such a weird, obtuse way to unlock that, I actually had to tell my friends about it so they could upgrade their spirits. I think like there's a point and place to be obtuse for player discovery or something like that that's a, a core gameplay mechanic. I think, you know, make it straightforward and, and easy to understand for most people. So, Yeah, there's definitely things like that or, or when uh, some people don't even find the the bell used to call the spirits because they never went back to that first church area exactly (laughs) and that's different than like buying a torch and using it in dark areas because i think that's a player discovery thing i don't think you need to be told hey buy a torch you can use it in dark areas i think it's cool to be like why is this person selling a torch for like no money grabbing it equipping and then realizing oh it actually lights up dark spaces i think that's a cool place to be obtuse on purpose but Mm -hmm. like you said with the core gameplay stuff it's like Oh, somebody's going to miss out on a a core part of the game simply because they didn't go back at night to this church to get the bell. It's come on now. And then there's and then there's that like snobby thing where you know someone might say like, well, actually that's you know that's their intention, and clearly you're not getting like just because it might be an intentional design in the game, um, doesn't mean that someone has to like it, right? It's not just because it's not a bug; it's a feature. It's just not every feature is for everyone all the time yeah or to and you can counter argue like what does that add to the experience right like it, uh, 
the worst case is going to be something they don't experience. So what does it add to any player? And it's not like we're getting anything extra because that conversation, the grand scheme of that character, the NPC story, isn't like that important. Much of the other information yet later on is. So it's like, what does that add in terms of it being secretive? And then the last one, I don't want to touch on it too much because I, I think we're going to talk about it later in, in the podcast. The final boss fight. I've talked about it. Um, like it's like 50%. The first 50% is absolutely incredible. And the last 50% is, uh, in my opinion, the worst final boss fight in a from software game for me um but like i said we'll talk about that later more specifically but yeah those are my weaknesses once again nitpicking but yeah no game's perfect you yeah so other i mean i mentioned the dungeons but otherwise um i do i go, I go back and forth on this there's there's a lot of different endings that can be had in this game and there's a lot of different npc quests you know that feed into which ending you're gonna get and um it's just it's it takes a you would never discover them naturally i guess not certainly not all of them you would have to play for thousands of hours um which i guess some people probably some people have to put these wikis together i you know so like they're doing the work but it almost feels like it's it's cool because it just creates more replay value but i don't know if it, it that alone to me doesn't get like that's not going to give me the replay value like i'm not going to play through the game for the ninth and tenth times to see the slightest variation of the endings right so it, um, i don't know sometimes and that's obviously where the obtuseness comes in too because if you have to you know talk to specific npcs and do specific things um in a specific order before doing other things that might you know progress the story in certain ways um and a lot of these things you would never know I don't know. Sometimes it gets, it could, it can get to be a little bit extra. That's, but that's also kind of the fun of it too, where like, you know, months after you're done even playing the game and you go back or even sometimes months later, like someone else, like the entire world doesn't even probably, we probably haven't discovered everything there is to discover in this game, right? Collectively, all of us. Oh, for sure. There's going to be things that come up and like, if things are done in a certain sequence that this happens, all that kind of stuff, right? That's kind of, I'm talking myself into this actually being a positive now because <laughs> it's bringing me back to the days of like, you know, Pokemon on the Game Boy and when N64 games when like we didn't know, you know, we were kids just trying to figure it all out. And we didn't have we didn't maybe didn't even have guides to know how to find everything. And it could be months afterward, you know, the games come out and like we find out about something, some secret that we discovered that like um Nowadays, a lot of that is lost in wikis and guides, right? Because it's so easy to figure everything out. Um, whereas From Software is kind of like pushing back, creating like an absurd amount of obtuseness to kind of maybe recreate a little bit of that magic. But I, yeah, so I, it, it's both a positive and a negative, I guess. Yeah, I think for me, because the narrative isn't at the forefront of From Games, it doesn't bother me that much because I just see it as like my experience and then I just watch stuff on YouTube after I finish the game. Like, let me check out this ending. Let me check out this ending. I want to see what happens with this NPC. Um, and I think part of that is because the game is so long that I don't want to go back and replay right. for all these different alternate endings. So it's kind of like a choose your own adventure book. And then I just watch the greatest hits after I'm done with it. Kind of, but uh, it's funny how you, you're like, uh, I don't know. Actually, I'm talking myself into this. <laughs> yeah. Um, this next section is the favorites. So we're going to go over specific, uh, parts of the game that are our favorites uh, for each of them. We I listed one for each one. I'm assuming you did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so first up for me, the uh, a design element. This is more of a vague category. I put the teleport gates. These are the, the circular little ball things you come across randomly that teleport you to random areas. Uh, oftentimes it's to an area that's usually unapproachable beforehand, and then you kind of can work your way back to the original place in which you teleported from. Sometimes it's completely random, uh, like the one leading up in right before you fight at the library. There's the one that teleports you to the church with uh, the pastor turtle, uh, which we'll get into later. Um, Yeah, I just it was really cool. Um, It was between this, honestly, and the Everjail uh, places. But the teleport gates, I thought, were a really fun addition that were completely optional and didn't really harm the experience at all. It was just fun little experiences. Mm-hmm. I, I, 
there was one thing that like I really wanted to point out for design element, and that was the map. Um, not just that like it looks nice and it's got the texture or whatever, but like the way it expands as you explore more, because you you start the game and you think, oh, this is a big old area. This is huge. This game is enormous. And you look at the map and you can see it all. But then as soon as you like start to branch out, that map like it starts to expand too, like in a weird way that I I don't know how to totally explain. Um, but basically. It, it makes you realize that like oh that was only a small chunk and there's, there's actually this much more and then there's actually this much more and it keeps happening so they it's some kind of like visual trickery they did with with the map that as you progress through the game it just like kept enlarging while the rest of the scale stayed the same and it i don't know it it made you for me it was mostly like excitement like oh crap like there's there's like a whole a whole nother layer to this like there's just so much more um after i feel like i'm not even close to done exploring this whole first section right um do you think that the the point of that was to make it so people didn't feel so overwhelmed at the jump yeah for sure because if they gave you that you know the the, the enormity of that entire map from the beginning you'd be like kind of starstruck you're like oh i don't even you're like oh is this a ubisoft game <laughs> yeah exactly but the way they do it instead it uh it it kind of keeps on making you excited to do more instead of overwhelming you with too much to do yeah i agreed uh next up area so i have a tie it's between you know when you first walk through the lendell outer walls and you come across that battleground with all the giant spears this is like right before you approach the capital and that open like it's like very golden filled where a, a yeah. battle took place Yep. I'm a sucker for that in anything. If you show me, like, the remnants of a war that just took place, that's totally my stuff. I love that. And obviously, once again, as I talked about earlier with the scale, it just was so cool. And that's tied with uh, the entirety of Nakaran Eternal City. Like, the whole aesthetic of, like, the purple galaxy and all of that, it just so cool and so different from anything else in the game. So th those two kind of tied. One is, like, obviously my favorite complete area, and the other is, oh, wow, this is, like, a really cool jaw-dropping moment of environmental storytelling, which From's always good at. Yeah, to me it was... There's some cool stuff, like, um, right before... So you're going through, like, learning of the lakes, and there's a lift to take you up to the plateau, but there's kind of, like, this, like, sharp chasm, I guess, or, like, canal or something. I don't know. Um, that kind of veers off towards that, that lift, and... There's very few places to get up and down from it. I don't know. Something about the way that that area was set up, I just thought was really cool. Kind of hard to explain. It reminded but, me of um, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It felt like a very fantasy movie um, kind of vibe. It yeah. felt like you were in something that like you couldn't quite, I don't know, climb. And it, I, hard to explain. But like the, the, the easy and real answer is, is, yeah, the underground city is crazy. Like, you have to fight Radon, which I'm sure he'll come up again later. Um, and then afterwards, it's, oh, there was a, a meteor strike at this spot for some reason. I can't remember which NPC tells you that. And you go there, and then you, like, like why is this meteor strike create, like, a, basically a hole to hell, it feels like, or to dig through the other side of the world? And as you traverse down it, and then you get to the bottom, and it's like, wait a minute, I'm, there's stars above me now. How are there stars? I just went underground, and... And then yeah, you realize like this is a whole this whole city is underground. It's like an entire universe under the map. I don't know. It 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 just was it just felt really well designed and it didn't feel like silly. It felt like it convinced me that that's that's what was here, and it just makes sense for some reason. Um, and that goes and to then, the exploration. Is I'm interested real quick. Uh, I wonder how many people saw the Eternal City for the first time after Radon. And how many people like me? The reason I found it first is I went to the elevator in the forest with all the giant bears. And there's an elevator that takes you down to it. And that's where I first saw the city. I'm curious to see how people actually discovered it for the first time. But go ahead. Sorry. Because that's a good point, though. Um, because no matter which way you get there first, once you're there, you'll see like, oh, wait a minute. I'm in the underground city, but I see this, you know, platforms way off, off in the distance. I certainly can't get to. And then later on, you know, you take the other entrance and then you're on that platform. Um, and there's like a few of those spots where you can get in and then you follow it even deeper and it just keeps going and going. And then all of a sudden you're in this lake of rot. And you're like, 
what the hell? Like, it just keeps on expanding and expanding on how much is down there and what's all going on in that world. So it just felt, it just was crazy. Uh, it feels like it could have been its own game. Like, yeah. you know, above surface and then below surface could have been two entirely different games because that's how much yeah. was in there. Crazy. Uh, next up, uh, weapons. I have a three-way tie. I'll go quick on them. First is the Grafted Blade Greatsword, which you get from the Leonin you fight at Castle Morn, whatever it's called. I can't remember the name of the castle. Basically the Game of Thrones sword. Uh, looks like the throne from Game of Thrones, a bunch of swords building to one giant sword. Uh, the Megamorm Scale Sword, which is the weapon you get for the boss drop. For the boss you fight in that area you talked about where you go up the scaffolding and all that, you eventually reach a Megamorm you fight. That sword is really cool in terms of its design. Uh, but my real answer is the weapon I used throughout the entirety of the game, which was Bloodhound's Fang, the curve, the great curved sword. Yeah. Such a cool weapon, so good. Uh, yeah, so three-way tie for me. So for most of the game, I was using the Moonveil Katana, which was basically, I started out as archaeologist, which was the, the magic build, basically. So I used a lot of um, magic, and then this Katana kind of scaled with both intelligence and, and the magic stat. Sorry. To, uh, the magic stat, which would, would have been intelligence and dexterity, as it's a, kata- a katana. Um, but it's it's kind of, I already forget what they call it, like the weapon art, whatever they call that in this game. The special move, more or less. Um, basically, you know, a large swing, either horizontal or vertical, and just a giant magical, you know, plate of light comes off the sword and projects forward and does super damage. But what else it does is it does a lot of like stagger damage or whatever, however they calculate that. And so a lot of bosses, you hit them twice with that attack, and all of a sudden they're stunned. And then you know, then you go in for the the visceral, which is again I don't know what they call it in this. That's what it was called in Bloodborne. But you go in for the visceral attack, and uh, super satisfying to uh to take bosses down with that. Also good for like crowd control when there's lots of enemies, things like that. But then eventually, of course, being um magic build. Going through uh, Ronnie, the Witch's Quest, at the end of that, you get classic Moonlight Greatsword. So I kind of converted to that and sort of switched back and forth with that and the Katana because that thing was just hilariously huge and powerful and was kind of fun to mess around with that, like, two-handed. So then, of course, I had several different staffs. Staffs? Staffs? I don't know. Magical staffs. I believe it's staffs. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought about it. Like multiple. Yeah, but the plural for staff. Anyway, um, multiple of those. Like they had a lot of. They had, they go call them gravity magic in this game, where like throwing meteors and purple orbs and things like that, as well as the typical, you know, Dark Souls like blue magic. Um, so some staffs were better than others at different types of magic. So I used a few different types um, and things like that. So yeah, a lot of a lot of. It's still, like, I only use primarily, like, four or five weapons um, throughout the entirety of the game. Um, I tried to experiment with a few later on, but there's so much more. Um, that, to me, is, like, probably where the most replay value is, is in the builds and the the, you know, the volume of different weapons that you can try out. So I do want to go back and what probably with, hopefully we get some DLC, I'll go back and entirely respec, because that's really easy to do, like you mentioned. Uh, next up, NPCs. So I got two honorable mentions in the actual choice. First honorable mention is War Counselor E.G. for Rena. He's a giant uh, blacksmith that works with Rena. Really cool character. Uh, gives me a lot of like, you know, Tyrion Lannister vibes. Uh, really like him. Uh, the her whole you know council was a really cool idea in that game. Uh, next up, had to mention Muriel, the Turtle Pastor. I love that guy. So good. The people who go and kill him, just absolute demons. Uh, and the Artorius of this game, that'll be the character I think that most people talk about for years is, uh, Blade or Blyde or however they pronounce it. I call him Blade. That's my, my headcanon is Blade. Uh, obviously the Wolfman, uh, one of some of the coolest looking armor in the game too, that I wore kind of like your cosplaying has him. Yeah. That's it for me. Yeah. Blyde is definitely on my list. That guy, um, doesn't, I don't know, just, he's huge. He's tall. And, like, just a knight with a wolf head. And it's so simple, but it's so cool at the same time. And uh, some bad things happen. You know, things don't end well for him, at least when I played the game. Um, but he brought it upon himself, I'll say. Um, but otherwise, uh, Alexander, the pop man, I 
like we we saw him in you know early gameplay like before the game came out like and he's stuck it's like oh well, you just hit me on my bum to smack me out and it's funny or whatever right that's all good but there's one interaction with him that i had later um, where he was just sitting in a lake of lava and i didn't i didn't know he was there at first i was you know exploring grabbing some items and things and i just hear like grunting like kind of like what the hell is going on then eventually i come across him and he's I had to go talk to him, even though I'm not going to last long in the lava. And he's like, yeah, I have to look up his exact lines, but he's basically like, yeah, this is pretty hot stuff. I'm, I'm really struggling out here. And, and, but he was just going, I can't remember what he said he was doing, but it just felt so like metal. Like this dude is just chilling in the lava, like pushing through it. Like it's whatever. Um, and it just cracked me up for a while. That guy. And then see, so you see him again later and he kind of challenges you to a duel, um, like a friendly duel. Um, which was pretty fun. It kind of fits him. And yeah, he had a, an interesting ending to his quest line too. I'll say, I think I would have liked him more if I ran into him more. I only really ran into him when you unstick him and then the Radon fight. And I think that was it. So I didn't really have a lot of experience with them. So that's why he's not on my list. I just didn't, you know, talk to him that much. Uh, let's get into our top five bosses. Uh, we'll go five, five, four, four, three, three, two, two, one, one. Um, I'll go first. So at number five, I have a tie between two early game bosses for similar reasons, but so it's Margit, the Foul Omen, and Godric, the Grafted. Margit is the first wall in the game. Uh, most people I know, that's where a lot of them either made or uh, made it or, or decided to quit the game. Uh, and a lot of my friends I know who played it aren't really a lot of from people. So I was awaiting that because I had gotten to Mar uh, Margit and I had beaten him. And I was like, oh, I think this is, I noticed it was going to be like, when you play enough from games, you know, Dom, I was like, oh, this is intended to be the first wall for the player base, right? Mm -hmm. So I played, I was like, okay. And then I, yeah, a lot of my friends didn't beat him and kind of stopped. It was the Asylum Demon of Elden Ring. And then uh, obviously Godric the Grafted, because I think he is a really good display of what we know from From Software Games, where it's the evolution of phases where he gets that dragon head and he puts it on his arm and it completely changes the way that fight unfolds in the second phase. And I, I think they're both really cool designs, too. They're like the old kings, very high fantasy, uh, very Lord of the Rings in some capacity, uh, which I really enjoyed. Um, yeah, so that's my number five, those two guys, the Stormvale Castle bros. I'll say um, my number five is kind of um, two things. So G Godric, for one, yeah, that, that midpoint in the fight where he just rips his, you know, rips a dragon head off and shoves it under his arm is like, the most like extension like the most from software thing they could do like they like to just get ridiculous with the kind of physical stuff that happens in their games and this was like them doing their shit to the max right when he puts that dragon on his arm and starts breathing fire out of it it's like what the heck um and then kind of another boss on my list is um godfrey so the first elven lord when you fight very very end of the game who has this kind of lion coming off of his back um for the first half of the fight but then the second half he entirely rips that lion off um maybe we should have like a spoiler warning at the beginning of this podcast it's if it's not obvious it's a whatever. spoiler cast yeah it's a spoiler cast. yeah, yeah, yeah it's people are looking yeah <laughs> yeah. For, yeah for some reason i hesitate i'm like wait a minute anyway <laughs> um yeah it just, he just entirely rips the lion off of his back and i'm just getting myself psyched up and prepared for like what kind of horrible disgust disgusting insane berserk kind of stuff is he going to do next for the second phase of this fight right but then of course it's nothing he just rips the lion off and then he's just fighting you with his bare hands no weapons and he's just like i am the warrior just like and he's even tougher at that point um and more aggressive but it was like the way that they subverted my expectations on that in that fight worked really really well because i just was like oh god what's he about to do he's just ripped the lion off he's gonna like put it on his head or is he gonna ride it or i don't even know um but then it was just no he's just dude he's just horaloo um warrior anyway yeah so that's two for my list uh number four for me is the beast clergyman that turns into malekith the black blade yes uh so this is a really cool reveal too because you run up into this room and you're like okay there's this beast clergyman he's kind of tough but not really he's kind of a whatever and I honestly thought it was the same beastman from the area you you can get teleported to, right? Where you like give him enough of that consumable, and he ends up going crazy. 
I thought it might have been the same person. And you fight this person, you take out the beast clergyman. Obviously, there's a second phase. To your point, it's like, well, what is this person going to do? What's going to happen? They unveil their robe, obviously, after stabbing their own hand, and it becomes Malekit the Black Blade, who, in my opinion, has some of the most difficult movement and aggression oh, to deal with so out of any hard. of the bosses in the game. Yeah. yeah, he's just on you constantly. He rarely gives you a moment to heal He was or a Bloodborne boss, but he was. Yeah, that's a very good point, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just love his design from a, from a you know purely aesthetic standpoint. And then the fight itself was so different than anything else that it really made you challenge your own capacities for combat in the game. So, yeah, that's my number four is Malekith the Black Blade. So the one that is on the other end of the teleport where it's like he's in like a temple or whatever. Did you fight him? I never got around to to killing him. No. Okay. You I can mean, spoil it. It's I'm trying to remember what happens at the end of it, but basically you start fighting him and halfway through, he stops, kind of like Patches did, and I think he just goes back to just being friendly after that. Can't oh, remember okay. The rest of the exchange, but I was really confused by. It. <laughs> so, oh, I guess we're cool now. Um. I just I let that guy go him. stay mad in that in that uh in that building for the rest of eternity. <clears throat> Cause it was so shocking. It was like you've been trading him stuff and he's been giving you spells and things, and then all of a sudden, you know, one of the times you finally go back and he is just like a, 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 you know, an amorphous of rage just destroying you. And he absolutely wrecked me the first couple of times I tried to fight him in like two hits. Like again, like Malakath, like just super aggressive and it just caught me off guard. Um But eventually, yeah, he just kinda stopped. Once you get him down enough. But anyway, um, I'll do, let's see. I think for three, I'm going to say Radagon, who was, um, which is apparently Radagon is the same person as, um, oh my goodness, uh, not Millennia, but, uh, oh my goodness, Mikawa, I think. It doesn't matter. Anyway, this, the so the first part the first half of the final boss fight of which the second half you said you didn't like but the first half is great it's just a regular humanoid dude not super big or anything um just has this you know kind of light hammer and the the music that goes with it and and the pacing and the way that he fights and it just was it felt kind of like a dance it just was super satisfying when you were able to dodge him um and learn his moveset it was just like a classic um kind of a classic Dark Souls boss where it just feels super satisfying once you start to get the moves down and dodge and hit them back and um, and plus like the effects of the lightning and um, everything around him just it was just really cool um, and I also wasn't a big fan of the follow up uh, boss after him but Radagon for sure was a cool fight yeah it's the blacksmith from the first trailer it's like that dude and he ends up being the final boss which is sick uh, when he's hammering away when we see it um yeah he would have made my list if it wasn't for the second half of that fight that second half of that fight was so <laughs> disappointing to me that he didn't make my top five but if like if it counted as two separate fights he might have been one or two for me honestly it's just the whole spectacle of the fight is so cool the arena mm -hmm. everything about it um number three for me is godskin duo so obviously you fight some of these godskin dudes throughout the game individually one's tall skinny and does like a weird mr fantastic penis thing the other one's like a big blob guy. Um, but towards the end of the game in uh, Crumbling Pharaoh Missoula, you come across both of them as a pair, and they're both a little bit more powerful than what you fought them before, and you have to fight them both at the same time. And this is the Ornstein Smau moment of Elden Ring, and of course From knows how to pull on those heartstrings. You give me a fight like that, and I'm going to love it. So I really enjoyed the pairing of those guys. I honestly think it would have been higher if... I hadn't already fought those bosses individually beforehand, mm -hmm. um, but I still enjoyed it because they present such unique challenges on their own. Uh, so shout out to the Godskin duo. Yeah, they would have made my list if you know they weren't just fucking bullshit. Uh, <laughs> 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 just absolute like, I, I it was so difficult. Like, I it, I couldn't even get close because especially the the large round guy when he does that thing where he just enlarges and then is just rolling towards you through the pillars. Non-stop. Like, yeah. <laughs> with just relentless. And like, I, that's a tough, or in retrospect, it's kind of weird because Ornstein and Smile, I remember for, it took, you know, 
hours upon hours to finally beat them the first time I played Dark Souls. Um, and it just, to me, was like, that was the hardest fight of any game ever, right? Um, but now I've, like, in, in recent playthroughs of Dark Souls and streams, watching streams and stuff, I'm like, they actually move pretty slow, and it's not that hard, like, at all. I'm, like, kind of wondering why it was so hard in the beginning, like, the first time I... But it also but, is like a hindsight thing, right? Because yeah, I must just be too familiar. Because was was the original Dark Souls? What was what what game was that in your From Software catalog play? Oh, the first one. Yep. Same, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of people I end up seeing play it and stream it are coming off of playing Sekiro or coming off of playing Dark Souls two or three or Elden Ring. So it's like they already have the understanding of the combat. Whereas I think if you go in there without an understanding of how from games are by the time you get to that point it is a challenge because well no that's not true i was gonna say it's the first time you fight two bosses but the gargoyles are the first time you fight two bosses oh, yeah. Yeah. um yeah I, I, it's it is a hindsight thing i think but yeah I'm, I, I'm the same way i see people fight him like wow this looks way less challenging than yeah. i remember playing it <laughs> i just remain i'll always remain like a little salty a little tilted uh after watching andy cortez beat them on the very first try first try and yeah. i'm like you motherfucker! <laughs> I just <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Gods can duo though compared to Ornstein and Smile. It feels like a thousand times harder. I'm like, oh, maybe eventually I'll get to a place where they're they're as easy as uh, Ornstein and Smile are now. But anyway, I got my actual. Um, let me see my number two real quick because you already oh, mentioned yeah, you him, which is Godfrey real quick. Uh, Godfrey first Elden Lord, and then he obviously turns into Horalu. Uh. The reason I like this fight so much is, yeah, the turn on expectations, but also that second form of his feels like you're playing a fighting game in a 3D space. Like, he feels like a yeah. fighting game character, That's a good which is really it. cool uh, and offers a different challenge. Um, and obviously that arena is really cool. It's like a circular platform that you're on near the top of the capital. And I, I do like the change in expectation there of you expecting him to turn to this nasty lion beast monster. <laughs> and funny enough, even though he doesn't do that and he becomes stripped down to the core of who he is, it still met the expectations because you see pictures of this guy throughout the game, like paintings. Like, who's this guy with this lion on his back? Uh, yeah, so shout out to Godfrey. And then, so his name is Horalu, and I've not looked into this yet, but one of the NPCs, you can have a quest for is uh nephili lou um and i think that like that's supposed to be her dad i don't know i'm gonna have to look into that but anyway um my next one and this is tough <sighs> i'll say for two is the ancestral spirit so this was the in the underground city you light these um they're not quite torches they're just fancy really fancy torches i guess whatever um there's like six of them or something you light them all and then you'll be able to find your way into this weird spiritual realm looking place and uh this this giant you know super huge like spiritual deer kind of a fight and it's very blue and magical looking and i don't know something about it just like some of the other fights it's everything in the arena the music the feel of it all it just felt very it wasn't a very difficult fight um I think i only spent like three or four tries on him but it just was super cool and something about it felt unique and psychedelic and calming um felt like i was one with nature or something like that um you know some kind of corny thing but it was just a super cool fight that i just i have to point out that i think you know obviously it's super optional um kind of a boss but it is very cool it's very like ethereal and kind of like majestic. Like, I I love that mm -hmm. boss design. Yeah, yeah, they're they're not overly difficult, but it's super unique and it's like kind of serene in a creepy way because the environment you're in is kind of quiet and it's like a spectral steed and yeah, I like the underrated boss fight I think in that game. I think a lot of people probably run into that and like, hey, it wasn't difficult, whatever. But I think the whole spectacle of it is worthy mm -hmm. of a place on anybody's list. Uh, number one for me is Radon. Uh, I think the whole scale of that, the the way it felt like an event, you're gathering these NPCs to fight, it was like one of the strongest narrative parts of the game in its entirety. Uh, <laughs> just the aesthetic of seeing this giant dude on this tiny little horse begging for its life, like you you saw that that thing was struggling. Uh, so cool how he comes down like a comet. The whole story about him, it just. It, it to me felt like the coolest 
boss fight and i don't know it just it seems like that's the one they were like this needs to be in the game this is like a thing we want to make as a big point of emphasis for Elden Ring. uh and the other thing i want to mention is millennia isn't on my list because i didn't get around to actually fighting her in my playthrough um it's something that i was like by the time i was finishing them i was like oh, do i don't want to go through getting to the optional area and fighting her or do i want to power through and finish the game and maybe i can go to that on a, a second playthrough or something so that's why she isn't on my list and then i already mentioned why uh radagon isn't because the second half of that fight is no bueno in my opinion but yeah radon's my number one boss fight yeah i have radon as one too it's just you learn about him you know before you get there and that from blide actually um and that it's not only like he, there's like a festival where everyone's gonna go try to fight him like collectively like every every hero or every npc in the game mostly is like gonna team up to try to fight this one guy and you hear about it and like okay that's that's weird and you, you make your way down there and and sure enough just start summoning dudes like just start summoning all these npcs and it's starting to feel like holy crap and there and really before you actually enter the arena um to fight him in which is a giant desert that's like barren but you're in this castle and people are starting to crowd up or whatever and there's like everyone's getting ready and there's like a guy giving a speech and it is this whole festival this whole event where like you're all just going to try to kill this radon guy um that we've heard about who can apparently like stop the stars from moving which is hard to comprehend and <laughs> it's a bit abstract but um he can stop the, the stars st but he doesn't like to walk <laughs> right and that's why once you kill him one of those meteors, you know, creates an entrance um, to the to the underground city because he's no longer stopping the stars, right? But anyway, yeah, you get in there after summoning all these dudes, and then you take five steps forward into this desert, and then all of a sudden this projectile hits you, and you're dead in one hit. And you're like, "What? What the heck was that? That that's it? I didn't even see anybody. It's just a, a desert hill." Um, and then. You reload and you go back in and you're like, okay, I'm going to be ready this time. And then all of a sudden you're, you're trying to look, but all of a sudden it's so fast and it hits you and it kills you again in one hit. And you're like, what on earth is this fight? What What is this game? Miyazaki, what are you trying to do to me? And you just get so confusing. Um, but then, you know, a couple more tries and you start to learn like, okay, these structures I can stand behind that'll block the projectiles and I got to keep moving, keep summoning people. <clears throat> and eventually, yeah, you get close enough to him and actually fight him. Um which is entirely, I don't know how anyone could beat him, not with projectiles or magic from a horse. I don't know how anyone could do that if they had to, like, fight him melee. That would be incredibly difficult. I, I used melee weapon, so that was me. <laughs> so, You're talking kudos to, to you. <laughs> well, and one of the coolest parts about this fight, and I think some people get mad at it, but it's a boss fight in Elden Ring where you finally beat it, and then you realize that some people were able to cheese it by making him comet drop into the water and immediately killing himself. Oh. And you're like, oh, there was cheese for this. I went, I, you know, I, I fought him the normal way and beat him, and then people are just cheesing it. I know some people might get upset by that, but I think it's entirely hilarious that yeah, oh, yeah. there's just this, like, perfectly designed boss where you're supposed to fill these certain things and attack it in a certain way. And somebody's like, I wonder if when he's coming down, if I stand close enough to this edge, will he just fall in the water? And he does. <laughs> and sure it enough. cheeses him, and it's really funny. Yeah, so shout out to Radon uh next up we would have talked about the final fight we've kind of already harped on it about how much we loved radagon and for me how much i dislike the second part so we don't really need to spend too much time on that uh next up uh with the game over uh we're wondering are we going to get dlc and what we want from it my answer is pretty simple i would want a large handcrafted dungeon so i don't need something added to the the overworld i would love just a giant like dungeon area added and uh uh, I, I want more giant bosses. Like, for me, it'd be really cool if uh, one of the, you know, the people I mentioned where you see the, the dead body sitting in the giant throne in the Eternal City, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it'd be cool if that ended up being one of the bosses in the DLC. Like, I want large-scale bosses, like grand, colossal beings uh, to fight. And maybe it is, like, the, the um, theme of the DLC has to do with giants or something, but... Those are my two wants. Like, I want a, a giant handcrafted dungeon, uh, and I want giant, in terms of scale, bosses. So apparently, and I didn't know this like while playing, but there's like Stormvale Castle, and then the capital, and the uh, university or whatever they call it, um, and certain like dungeons that are um, you know large created in the game. They're called like legacy dungeons, 
um, which is apparently like an official term, but basically meant to like kind of give you that Dark Souls, you know, gameplay where it isn't just an open world. It, there's also these more constricted, large areas, but you have to navigate through them and make shortcuts and things like that. So I definitely want more of those, you know, one or two, probably realistically one big legacy dungeon. Um, and then, but also I do like, I think you still also have to do more of the open world too. Um, if I think of what, what DLC should be, I guess like, you know, more of everything that that game did. So like another legacy dungeon, a whole nother section of open world map, you know, some more NPCs or like, you know, continuing NPC quests that were already there into this new area or whatever it is. Um, obviously more weapons, spells, etc. And cool bosses. Yeah, some giant bosses, like you said, would be cool always. So it's just realistically just more of what Elden Ring did. Obviously, like, if a new area, like, well, as different as it could look and feel from the existing areas too, you know. I don't think, like, for DLC, it's not usually rocket science there's not so much expectation of like reinventing the wheel right so and we trust what yeah. from will give us anyways so yeah it's like yeah and then what they also always do is like continue or like expand on the core narrative from the first game they're, they're usually pretty good about that where it's not just like some side thing that is kind of adjacent to the main story it's actually like pretty a crucial part like involves characters that we've already met um and, and it doesn't have to be linear, that. necessarily. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we could go like go back in the past and experience something that's already taken place. Um, can't wait. Hopefully, it's announced by the end of the year. Uh, next up, should it get a sequel? Uh, selfishly, yes, I definitely want a sequel. But when I've thought about this, they from software provided enough that I would be satiated with this being all of what we got from Elden Ring. You know, add on the DLC. We talked about how much replay value there is there. Um, monetarily, they're, you know, the amount of money they've made from this game, I wouldn't be surprised if they automatically greenlit a sequel. But at the same time, I don't know if, you know, in some ways this feels like a trilogy of games packed into one experience because of how extensive it is. So I wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't be bummed if we didn't get one, but if you're saying like, do you want a sequel? Yeah, of course. <laughs> right. Just like the DLC, of course I want it in a sequel. Absolutely. Um. I don't, I'm not convinced that they would do it. Like the, the unprecedented thing is like how much money and how many copies this game sold. Right. So it's kind of, <laughs> it'd be hard to convince. Um, but the counter argument well, is like, couldn't they get that with a different IP as well? Right. Like that'd be the counter argument because it is from software to, to a lesser extent, of course. But yeah, you still put on there like from the creators of Elden Ring um, that still doesn't go near like as far as like, if you just called it Elden Ring two or Elden Ring subtitle. Right. But they don't typically do that. They did. Well, they did Dark Souls 2 and 3, um, but otherwise they've stayed, you know. Demon Souls was kind of a unique scenario because they couldn't uh, use that name anymore after they did that game. Bloodborne was PlayStation published. So uh, we don't know. Sekiro Maybe. was Activision yeah. published. So we don't. I guess it's kind of, they've done sequels, but not always. But there's too many other factors to necessarily say if they're like uh, entirely for or against them. Um, cause they don't, they don't, they're not owned by any other company. I don't think, I think from software, they obviously work with many publishers, but I think, I think they, they're independent. I'm pretty sure. Independent, So they could, they really do whatever the heck they want. Um, even if it is, yeah, not set, not cashing in on sequel money. Um, I think that, so that changes the equation a little bit for me too. Cause like if they're owned by Activision, I'd be like, well, obviously they're going to be a sequel, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so I guess we can get into our final thoughts here before we close out. You know, for me, I think it's from Software and Hidetaka Miyazaki's magnum opus, Elden Ring. I think it's just their mm -hmm. culmination of everything they've done. It's, it takes their level design, their environmental storytelling, their combat, all of that stuff, and nails it in a experience they've never tried before. And, uh, you know, everything they've done before this has led to this game. You can see the imprints of all of those games. Uh, I could totally see them going in a different direction, honestly. I wouldn't be surprised if their next game, which is currently rumored to be that next Armor, Armored Core reboot, uh, is vastly different. Because I could totally see Miyazaki wanting to kind of do a palate cleanser game and get away from this uh, because they have 
been so focused creatively on these type of games for so long. I think that's why they did the Diracine, the VR game, um, because they, I think it was one of those refreshing palette cleansers for them. Uh, but then again, I could see a Sekiro or Bloodborne sequel also coming, which wouldn't be shocking. Bloodborne sequel would be would be shocking at this point based on all the information yeah. we have. A Sekiro one, no, no way that I, I I would not be surprised if Activision is like, hey, we could use a win right now. Let's screen light another game from those dudes who win game of the year and sell a bunch of copies of their games. Um, yeah, those are my final thoughts. Eldering, incredible. So I'll, I'll I'll have some good final thoughts. So like, let's assume, and it's a largely safe assumption that Elden Ring is going to win the Game Award for Game of the Year. Um, maybe if God of War still comes out this year, I think it's it's like November, so it would still be within the cutoff. It could have a chance to surpass. Otherwise, I'm not sure what else. Like Horizon, I think would have a tough time, you know, beating it. But anyway, um, that obviously Sekiro also won a Game of the Year in 2019 from the Game Awards. So I'm wondering how many studio, how many development studios have had two or three or more or whatever um, Game Award Game of the Years. Game, you know what I mean? Because um, uh, it feels like From Software is about to have that. So I, not I feel like Rockstar might they might have Grand Theft Auto or Red Dead or something, but I think like From Software is now firmly planted, um, at in that territory in that group of developers, you know, with Rockstar and Naughty Dog and um, maybe like a Bungie or whoever else. Like that to me, like this game has like firmly even like with a larger crowd, this is no longer just like a niche genre or game. Like this has enough broad appeal. Yeah, it's still not for everyone, of course, but um, I feel like that's that's kind of the final thought I have is like, From Software is really uh, like making making a legacy here. I feel. Yeah, and to your point, no one's won two Game of the Year awards, so I'll Nobody. go through them real quick. Twenty fourteen, Dragon Age Inquisition from Bioware. Twenty fifteen, Witcher three. Twenty sixteen, Overwatch. Twenty seventeen, Breath of the Wild. Twenty eighteen, God of War. Twenty nineteen, Sekiro. 2020 Last of Us Part 2, 2021 It Takes Two. So you could technically yeah. say EA because EA published Dragon Age and they published yeah. It Takes Two. But I'm yeah, dead. you know. Also, uh, From Software isn't. Since 2014. So I guess that's part of it. From Software isn't independent, technically. Oh. They're owned by Katakawa Duango Corporation, which is a Japanese media conglomerate. So wow. they're independent from a Western viewpoint i guess because it's like it's a japanese conglomerate but they're not technically independent they're owned by a corporation hmm. which i didn't know interesting yeah uh that's it for this show thank you guys for listening to our spoiler cast i'm um, i absolutely love from software and elden ring hopefully you enjoyed our talk about our favorite parts of the game if you can please follow us on your favorite podcast service including spotify uh, apple Podcasts. leave a review it helps us out on youtube search controlled interest you'll find the video form of the podcast you can head over to controlledinterest.com to listen to the audio there if you don't want to use any of those specified platforms and just download the podcast yourself. Otherwise, you can follow us on Twitter at uh, collectively at CTRLINT. It's controlled interest abbreviated. You can follow Dom at OBDomKenobi. The O and OB is the number zero, not the letter O. And I am at Jared Weich, J-E-R-R-A-D-W-Y-C-H-E. And we'll catch you guys for episode 251. We're back to the grind of talking about video game news. And uh, hopefully Warner Brothers doesn't collapse on itself and we have to talk about the future of, uh, you know, Batman and all of those games. Anyways, we'll see you guys next time. Dom, close us out with the Elden Ring catchphrase. Let's keep Elden blinging. Or, 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 let's get that Elden bling. See you guys next time. Bye.